Hello there, Ghouls Gang, and welcome back to the podcast. As part of our Indie Horror Month, I will be bringing you a feature-length discussion with writer Alex Cronenberg about 2013's The Borderlands. But today, I have an extra bonus episode for you to accompany that, as I welcome a very special guest. She is an indie filmmaker, an educator, and producer of The Borderlands. I'm delighted to have Jen Handorf here with me today. Hello, Jen. Hello. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, We've also got a little canine friend uh, making a, (laughs) a special appearance. I can't wait for insights from his moose. Yeah, this is Moose, who uh, I like to say he's homeschooled, which means that we got we got him in 2019 December. So the second he was allowed to socialize was the first lockdown. So he's he's my little homeschooled munchkin. And if he makes a verbal appearance, uh, we'll just know that he's he's mostly agrees with me, but sometimes he likes to likes to set me straight. So uh, well, we don't mind a little bit of debate on the girls' podcast. <laughs> it's all good. Um. So firstly, then I just wanted to ask a little bit about what your relationship is with horror have you always been a horror fan I wondered and can you describe you know what your journey with horror has been like so uh I I sort of came about it in a non-traditional way I guess where I grew up in Memphis Tennessee and I went to Miss Hutchison's Collegiate Preparatory School for Young Ladies and society had very specific <laughs> that's literally the name of the school I went to as well I'm thinking um, of like picnic at Hangin Rock or... <laughs> it's oh my god I mean it really it really was like we had a lake and it had du- like it was very you know and I think it's just the way my mind works because actually reflecting on that I would be sat there looking out the window at the lake and sort of imagining little murder mysteries and this kind of thing <laughs> like somebody's body body of a drifter found in the lake what would that be like you know sort of Agatha Christie-esque things but um and actually I think that that was probably my way in because it was it was the acceptable face of horror was things like Agatha Christie and Edward Gorey and um that sort of edge of things and I just my my first sort of horror film memory is uh sneaking in while my parents were watching um uh uh silence of the lambs and they were watching it in the basement and the way that our stairs were uh you could sit on the stairs and see the tv but the couch was (laughs) facing away from you so they couldn't see you perfect (laughs) so you know i was sat there looking through the slats watching silence of the lambs because i wasn't allowed to go down and watch it with my parents and trying to be like really quiet while this thing went on um i just i really liked it i you know this is in the age of of blockbuster and hbo and cinemax being literally the only way someone my age could watch a horror film because my parents weren't about to take me to the cinema to watch it um and uh i mean i can't even remember them ever taking me to watch a horror film at the cinema um so you know sort of sneaky it came to me sneakily I I would stay up late and watch something on Cinemax or which is how I got to know um like Chucky and 
uh, Jennifer Tilly and and that sort of lot because they would play these lascivious sort of horror films late at night. Um, and then as I got older, uh, I always sort of gravitated to the comically dark side of things, um, like your neighborhood friendly goth. And um, <laughs> my my mates were all a bit older and playing in heavy metal bands. And they were all deeply into horror, like very, like, you know, Lloyd Kaufman tattoos, like my, my boyfriend at the time had every universal monster on his, on a back, uh, back tattoo. Um, uh, and Frankenstein had a teddy bear, which is like, again, that very like gentle, horrifying sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I remember they took me to this place called Black Lodge Video. And, <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and at that point like that was game over from there on it because it was all horror films it literally and I, oh, wow. I don't know if it's still open but yeah black lodge horror uh, black lodge video in memphis um and it was just basically this dude's vhs collection that he had enough vhs that he could open a rental store um and it had like a it had like one of those 70s recessed floors in it and the tv was you know it's a cathode ray big square tv yeah. that and there was just like just like golf horror fans just sat there watching movies all day like, <laughs> waiting to go to their job at the coffee shop that evening and, and just passing the time but yeah so so I didn't come to it the way you hear a lot of people say, oh, I always loved horror and I remember seeing in the cinema this film and this, that. I had to sort of sneak bits and pieces of it and and sort of uh, under under the, under the dark of night um, <laughs> get my horror fix. Uh, and I think that just meant that, uh, you know, you were, you were asking me about references and influences and we'll get to that a bit later. But yeah, it just meant I came to it a bit more inorganically i suppose because nothing nothing followed a path it was all just sort of what i could hoover up and what i came upon but yeah that's my convoluted story and then i married a special effects artist and moved to england so like again no choice game over man moment <laughs> very much so <laughs> it's like, oh you want to watch a romantic comedy not happening <laughs> uh but yeah um and i should mention as well i i um when I was living in New York City, I worked at a place called Kim's Media. Uh, Mediopolis was my store, um, uh, which was this video VHS rental. Well, we did both at the time, uh, a rental store in New York. And they had sort of like four locations. And it's one of the places that Kevin Smith based Clerks off of. Um, that was his video store in New York that he would go to. Um, but uh, being there as well, that was sort of where I went from just like, I'll spit on your grave to like, you know, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the name now, but what's that, what's that black and white Japanese one? Um, uh, that's all through the reeds and it's got the amazing, terrifying. Oh, uh, Onibaba. Yes. Onibaba. Like where I would get into, like, that's where I finally, you know, got out of just like the classical sort of slasher mm. you know, and stuff like the innocence. Like I'd never come across <gasps> the innocence. Before. Oh, I love the innocence. Um, and and I think I think if I had come to the genre on my own with plentiful resources, I would have started with the innocence, and I would have started with with that kind of thing because that's really the kind of stuff that, as you you know, as you gasp, like really, really <laughs> gets me going. And strangely enough, like my parents. <laughs> will surprise no one uh, my parents are super into <laughs> opera and so I'd seen the turn of the screw which the innocence is based on but again you know coming at it from this very like inorganic <laughs> kind of yeah. pathway it's like 
oh, The Innocents. It's based on an opera called Turn of the Screw. And everybody's like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so very inorganic, but I had these sort of formative moments and formative places. So like Over the Bannister or the Heavy Metal Guys or uh, Black Lodge or um, Kim's where, or my husband, where it's sort of suddenly a new library opened up to me. Um, and anything that I hadn't already consumed, I could get my hands on. So yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting journey, as they say. I feel like, as you're describing the video shop, I can almost smell it. Mm. <laughs> There's a specific smell to the VHS shops, for sure. Uh, it, it's, it's a little damp and a yeah. little stale pop popcorn <laughs> like it's not necessarily <laughs> like a good smell no but it's, it's an very... evocative smell and i probably would wear a perfume of it if there was one out there <laughs> like it's not it's not like pure musk but it's it's certainly evocative and uh i even like i am addicted to red gummy candy of any kind and i'm absolutely <laughs> positive it's because i always bought red twizzlers when i went to blockbuster um, and it's just such an evocative memory, that flavor that I want to go back to Blockbuster on a Friday night. Like that's that's <laughs> my thing. Um, but uh I love now that a lot of audiences will genuinely have no idea what a Blockbuster was like. Or like <laughs> what was the what was the main video st store when you were growing up? The, the Blockbuster was the big one, but that's not the one I would go to. It was literally a shop that didn't even have a sign above it. It was <laughs> Paper stickers, like neon paper circle stickers on every it, 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 box. Like, not like, even, not even that organized. Like, literally, just a, a couch, a really <laughs> rag raggedy carpet. Uh, I think you may have been in somebody's house. <laughs> you may just have actually been going to somebody's flat. Like. <laughs> Possibly, it was on a main road. So, uh, but um, yeah, we we should definitely definitely we should campaign for a perfume or maybe like a candle like essence Ooh, a candle of vhs yeah <laughs> i'd love a little vhs store candle um <laughs> you know during lockdown that was one of my like add hobbies was like buying too much candle making wax we made all these skull candles now i know what scent to make them <laughs> that's perfect we'll absolutely do that that's the range um living so so you heard it here first listeners uh, <laughs> scented cinema candles um, you could do you could do Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which would be the smell of the wafting corpses that they describe. If you've heard the behind, sorry, I'm just brainstorming now. It's obviously, <laughs> this is this is how I'm going to fund my next movie. So this is great. <laughs> so um, so we're talking about the Borderlands for yes. our podcast under the theme because we have a theme every month that goes. So this month's theme is independent horror. Okay, so, cool. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what are some of your favorite indie horrors? I'm sure you've got a list as long as... <laughs> so, yeah, I always find the favorite film question in all of its context really difficult because, and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't even understand people who have one favorite film all the time. Like, I, I, I don't know how that works um, <laughs> because my, whatever I'm into, you know, I've got classics like the innocence and rosemary's baby and this stuff that i always go back to but um but yeah it really constantly evolves based on whatever i'm doing um i'm gonna be super super cheesy and say that at the moment my favorite independent horror film is an italian horror film called pontifa 
that is playing at the Rain Dance Film Festival. Um, I think it it has a screening after this airs. So so <laughs> good it does, people. But you ought to check it out anyway. Um, but uh, but I got to program their Scream Fest, their horror strand at Rain Dance this year, and that was a film that really really stood out to me. Um, and I I do think nowadays you very much have to go outside certainly of Hollywood and to a greater not to a greater to to a lesser extent outside of UK cinema because there's not a lot of actually independent film happening in those places um you know you can talk about brilliant films like censor but the BFI put money into that that was government mm -hmm. sponsored so you know that's not to say that they they didn't absolutely work really hard to get their funding but it's really hard to say that's independent cinema when it's made with the support of sales agents, distributors, and the government. Um, so I think when you look at a lot of foreign language films, foreign language films, what a horrible phrase, uh, international non-English language cinema, um, uh, you see a lot more of that scrappy ingenuity that is independent cinema um so yeah at the moment that's where i'm at and i would say pontifat which is about um a, a mother and daughter move to a small town in italy uh because the mother's trying to get her life together and there's a myth of a witch who steals children and the mother's trying to you know obviously she knows it's a myth it's a story it's not real but as time goes on she realizes that they're all telling her the truth that these aren't like veiled warnings or an allegories they are mm. warning her that if her behavior doesn't change the witch will steal her daughter um and i love i love that blurring of worlds of reality and and supernatural because i think that's that's what makes horror really fun is when you believe it could be vaguely possible um you know you look at something like it and obviously there's loads of jump scares and the makeup is itself pretty terrifying but you're not going to wake up and have a have a you know shining tower of corpses in your small town sewer like that's not that's not reality <laughs> but you might have a creepy face in the in the gutter and so that's the bit yeah. that to me is really interesting um you know what is that is that a shadow or is that a you know a killer clown um which is another one of my fears. <laughs> so I should say another one of my pockets is that my brother showed me killer clowns. My older brother showed me killer clowns from outer space when he was meant to be babysitting me when I was like seven. So that, I think that's why I wasn't allowed to watch horror films <laughs> until much later because because probably my parents were like, we, we had to be up with her for date. We can't take her to the circus anymore. It's all a disaster. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so, that's my long-winded answer to what's your favorite independent film. I just think it's it's really hard to say what's independent and not. And that's not to say there isn't a lot of fantastically supported corporate horror. But I think because it feels like a dig when you call something corporate horror, people are hesitant to call a spade a spade in that mm -hmm. instance. Yeah. Um, like Nope is an amazing film, but it's absolutely a studio film. Yeah. um just because it's interesting doesn't mean it's not a studio film you know hereditary <laughs> studio film like they're all they're all studio film <laughs> yeah yeah um so yeah that's where that's where I'm at with the independent horror at the moment and so what was it that drew you to work in the film industry and m more specifically was there a point where you thought I want to be a producer like that's the role that I want and how did you what were the sort of main steps that you took to get there 
Absolutely. So the opposite is, is true. I never <laughs> want to be a producer. And um, so I I was always interested in the arts. Um, I thought I was going to be a fine artist, but I flunked my degree piece in high school, uh, which I still object to as a note. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, so I was discouraged from that. And then when I went to university, because uh, I'd, I'd won some writing awards at that point, and I thought um, I'll be a film critic uh, because I enjoy analysis. I enjoy talking the sound of my own voice um and i enjoy film so that made sense and i went to columbia university and uh their undergraduate program for film criticism uh for journalism uh closed before i graduated and it went oh. to just a master's um now it was the, in my first year thankfully it closed so i was still getting all of my like basic requirements out of the way and as I was looking at, okay, so what else can I do in the university? Like, what what will my classes fit into? Um, I could be an English major, um, but that sounded like way too vague for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was looking at it and all the classes I wanted to take in the English major were film classes anyway, um, film electives. And so I was like, maybe I can be a film student. And so rather than, because my parents very amazingly paid for my education, um, but I, you know, you're under the shadow there. So it's a little bit like, I can't, I, I you know, I was already going to be a journalist. That that at least <laughs> legitimacy to it. I can't tell them I'm going to be a filmmaker. <laughs> so I double majored. Uh, my parents knew I was majoring in psychology. Uh, and then again, sneakily on the side, I double majored. I took film studies at the same time um and so you know i'm over there completing all of my like psychology requirements really early in the year and trying to get that done and then my second term is all film electives <laughs> um so while i was doing that um and, and keep this is really before digital cinema was available to consumers um you know digital cameras at the time weren't film cameras they were stills cameras and they were terrible um uh still flip think flip phone era like this is still <laughs> this is still the before times so you couldn't just go out and make a film with your friends that wasn't available um so i was working in theater because that was a way that i could tell stories and that we could perform and it was sort of what was available to us um and i was working on a play with my friends uh which is um the complete tale uh, complete works of william shakespeare abridged we were putting on um and every role was taken except producer and i was just like oh because it's a it's an all-male show and so it was just like oh man so if i'm gonna see my friends this term because they're gonna be working on the play i need to produce it that's really the only way i can be productively involved and so i produced the play and we made money and we made enough money to put on another play and so i produced that one and we made enough money to put on another play and i produced that one and then one of my colleagues uh, at my day job um, uh, asked me, he was a graduate student, he asked me if I'd produce his thesis film. And I was like, man, I've only ever produced theater. I've never produced a movie before. Like, obviously I've taken film and I've made some stuff in class, but I don't. He's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, you, I, you just do what I say <laughs> and, and it'll be fine. And so it was this real trial by fire um and you know most of it was fine but there are moments i remember things like 
I didn't know we had to have insurance. Um, because that's not like in theater, you're insured like diff way differently. <laughs> and so we were going to go pick up the equipment, and my director was like, "Oh, do you have the insurance paperwork?" And I was like, "I'm sorry, really? the what? The what?" Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we did things like uh, so my we were filming in Manhattan, and my director changed his mind last minute on where he wanted a location. And I've literally, you know, I've got the permits from the Manhattan Film Office. Like, it's big girl stuff. I'm doing big girl stuff. <laughs> and and he says, no, I want to shoot somewhere else. And these permits take 72 hours to process. And it's the weekend. And the police will stop you filming in New York City. And I don't know what to do. So what I do um, instead, of, instead of panicking and telling him no um, is that uh, I was already dating my now husband at the time. I... Is that me? That's me. Sorry. That's um, and that was my husband right on cue, actually. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah. So he says, I can help you reproduce the embossing seal that is on the location permit. Um, and so I literally like I took a mold of the new Manhattan's like location permit seal and we recreated it in plaster and we printed a, a fabric. We, we, we forged these documents. Forged. <laughs> like we properly forged the documents. And the thing is, I'm thinking like, this isn't going to matter. We're never going to get stopped by the cops. We're down a small side street in, in Manhattan. Like nobody's ever going to talk to us. And obviously the police rock up. And again, we're filming film. And when you're filming film, it's very expensive <laughs> and we have yeah. no money. <laughs> so this is like, you know, there's there's like some terrified camera assistant in the back of a van with his hands in a tent changing the film canisters <laughs> while the police lights are like rocking up and stopping <laughs> us. And and I feel like this was such a formative moment for me as a producer, because what I did then I have used so many times since then they came up and they're like, sorry, do you have a permit to be here? I'm like, oh, I'm 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 only a production assistant, but let me phone the producer and find out what's happening um because they'll never yell at the lower man on the totem pole yeah. <laughs> it's, it's this invisible asshole's fault they're they're the irresponsible one and i'm like shaking as i bring the permit out to show them like i'm convinced i'm going to all sorts of jail um and they just you know they glance at it and they're like yeah okay we'll have a good night you know you guys you guys do your thing because obviously they you know they're not they're not expecting forged documents by no. students in the middle of the night and it was mischief night as well it was october 30th um but yeah, so so I became a producer quite reluctantly. That fit, <laughs> that short film played Sundance. It won the HBO Black Filmmakers Award, which meant it played on HBO for a year. Wow. Um, that film did very well by me. And it meant, rightly or wrongly, that a lot of people thought, well, if Jen produces my graduate film, then it's going to do this well. Um, and so I I cut my teeth producing graduate films for MA students at NYU and Columbia and that that was brilliant because I was cheap <laughs> I was ready <laughs> to learn they were happy yeah. to teach me um some of them did great some of them were catastrophic um I wouldn't give up a minute of it uh hmm. and yeah so from there it's like okay I'm a producer I can do this I can make films this is it's it's a job my parents were like you know oh it's a job That's your parents are were good with that yeah. <laughs> they literally said to me why can't you make a nice movie <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I, I was showing him a film I did called The Forgotten, which is probably one of the nicest movies I've ever made. And my mom just paused it on the laptop and like looked at me and said, why can't you just make a nice movie? <laughs> um, uh, you, mom, I learned it from watching you. Uh, but uh, but yeah, and, and so, you know, I started producing movies and I moved to the UK and did my first feature. And everybody said, you can't make a feature for 500K. And, and we did. And hmm. it wasn't very good. Uh, but it meant I'd made a feature film. And from there, it got easier and easier to get money to make more. Um, and now, post-lockdown revelations, uh, <laughs> I realized what I wanted to do all along, but was stupidly waiting for someone to give me permission to do, was direct. Wow. Um, and so from that very first play where I should have shot my hand up and said, no, I want to direct this. Somebody else can produce it. I let everybody pick the role they wanted. And then I came in where I was needed. And now um, I look back on my career and I've, I've produced for a lot of first time directors. Um, and uh, I look back on my career and I think, why did I think they were any better at this than I would be? <laughs> like why why did i think sure. they permission but i don't um and so yeah so lately this past year has been about giving myself permission to direct and uh make my own work so i've, I've made a short and a pilot and i'm trying to um get a feature off the ground which is a horror film about menopause uh and i'm very excited about it oh, incredible <laughs> incredible <laughs> So, so again, long-winded answer, but there you go. <laughs> no, no, hearing about those sort of formative years is fascinating, you know, such a different time and place and just that exposure that you had. Um, it's a shame, obviously, that it's taken you so long to feel like the space for you as a director is very much open in there, but it it shows though, you know, people people talk a lot about this era of female directors, and it's like, oh, is it, isn't it? Like da da da. There were like two female horror directors when I was coming up and and they were both doing massive films. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a thing. I think the Soska sisters were the first time I had really seen this idea of female horror directors in the indie space. And and, you know, like I, re I really like what they did with American Mary. I will say I think one of the issues with women in horror as directors is the objectification um you don't see calendars with male horror directors in their skivvies um but there's like six calendars of female horror directors in their skivvies so i'm just i'm just asking for balance i'm not saying nobody yeah. should get in their skivvies i just want to see want balance yeah james wan's wang um no uh but <laughs> you know turnabout's fair play though right if we're gonna see side boob then you know what's the equivalent <laughs> let's just balance the playing field level of playing field um but uh but yeah i do i i think it's really changed and i think i'm i'm evidence of that i'm i'm turning yep. 40 next year and oh, okay i i feel just like you know the the 19 year olds feel now i feel the same way where it's like oh it's my time i get to do this now um so it is important and it is brilliant and it is amazing so at least there's that <laughs> And so how was it that you came to land the producer role on the Borderlands? And like, at what point in your career? So this is obviously after you've worked with all the undergraduates and, mm. you know, so when did that come along? So I had produced uh, my first feature and my second feature by this point. 
Um, I had co-produced another film as well. So I was confident about how to make a film. Um, Where I was less confident, and still am, to be perfectly honest, I think everybody is, is how to raise money to make a film. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or possibly how to sell a film. Uh, And so um, my third producing credit was on a film called uh, Devil's Business. And I made this for, I think we shot it for like 10 grand. And the budget was between me, the director, and a, and a friend of ours. Um, uh, the crew all worked for free. They all worked for points. And then at the about a year later, we were able to pay them all, like, it was a two-week shoot. We were able to pay them all, like, six, seven hundred quid or something. Um, so it wasn't great paid in the end, but we did pay those points out. Um, yeah. And uh, that film was sold to Metrodome Distribution, now defunct, um, not my fault. Uh, uh, And they liked it and they were like, wow, okay, you made this for 10 grand and we bought it for 12 because we thought it was more than that. So would you come make a movie with us? Okay. Okay, well, this is interesting. And this was this was the first time something happened for me that has happened a couple times where I get brought on to a project where there is mostly the budget or all of the budget, but it, the project itself needs development. So there might not be a director attached or the script might need work or this kind of thing. So um, this is where I became what I specialized in, which is a creative producer. Um, which again, you know, I, I mentioned, uh, there was this Gary Ullman talk last night and he said that he'd love to direct a movie and all he needs is 5 million pounds. And that's literally the budget I'm trying to get for my movie at the moment. So I feel less bad knowing Gary Ullman <laughs> also can't get five, that 5 million pounds for his movie. Um, but that's the bit I'm bad at. So, so Metronome said, well, we've got the money. We'll fully finance it. Um, and we would love you to have as much creative freedom as you want but it has to be a found footage movie that is our brief and they 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 distributed grave encounters and there was a lot um like they they made made me watch they sent me grave encounters to watch (laughs) we're like we want to reproduce this we want 100 million views on youtube uh from the trailer we want uh you know we want to sell it on on home video we want to reproduce this so make it like this please Okay, so a very specific brief of found footage grave encounters. <laughs> <laughs> and and it really didn't go beyond that. Like there were things, there was there was something like a page and a half treatment that existed when I came oh, wow. on. Okay. And there I was were... gonna ask how how developed was it? Yeah, at that it, point? it was it was not very developed. Um you know, this page and a half treatment, uh it, there was references to House on the Borderlands. Um, so I read that and, uh, Whistle in the Wind, uh, which I was familiar with by that point already. Um, so that was the sort of cauldron of the brief. Um, and I think, I think what was in place was the, the priests investigating a miracle. And that was the whole brief. Um, but, but we were told we could go with that or, or love it or leave it as much as we wanted to, (laughs) so, you know, uh, found footage, ghost watch, a hundred million views on YouTube. Um, but yeah. And, and so from there, Elliot Goldner, the director, uh, he, he was attached as well. He, he had made a film with, uh, the, the executive at, at Metronome in film school. 
And so, you know, those relationships do pay off, it turns out. Um, and uh, so he was on. So he went off and did a draft. And we workshopped that a long time. Um, James Moran came in and workshopped it. Uh, James and I had been working on a couple scripts together by that point. So I knew I wanted him to come in. And he's he's very good at structure and he's very good at funny. Um, and so he came in and did a lot of structure and a lot of funny. And after script wise, after we did the initial shoot, uh, Sean Hogan came in and and wrote what ended up being about seven minutes of original material for the film. Um, and what Sean is very good at is quippy dialogue. Uh, and I had Devil's Business with Sean Hogan's film with me. Um, he directed it and wrote it. Um, so between that and the improv, which Rob and Gordon did throughout the production, so there's there's so much B-roll on this film. It's it's wow. it would be tolerable if they weren't a delight. But <laughs> there are two men who talk for England and Scotland consecutively, and uh, they're like wind-up toys. You just sort of you give them a cup of coffee and you just turn the camera on and see what happens. Um, but um, you know, so so while that original sort of script and treatment had come out of Elliot and Metrodome's conversations. It went through a lot of iterations. And I think if you transcribed the film, I don't know if it would be recognizable or not from that original draft. I don't know if you would know that they were the same production. Um, so yeah, there was a lot, a lot of people contributing a lot of magic to that story, I would say. Amazing. Um, so you've sort of touched upon, we've talked a little bit about the stipulations around like found footage mm. so I just wanted to ask a little bit about influences and defining the film because for me it's like of course yeah first and foremost it's a found footage film but when I was revisiting it I was like I see shades of folk horror in here mm. I see shades of like cult-based horror like lots of notes of the omen um so I wanted to ask a little bit about any influences that you did draw upon and then also um, I recall watching some of the extras on um, the DVD and um, yourself and some other people highlighting the sort of restrictive nature of the farm footage genre yeah, and how, yeah. yeah, like how that it gives you like technical limitations, but it can also throw up a lot of scope for being like really inventive and creative. So I wondered if you could talk about the restrictions and how you work through them challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as far as influences go, again, I'm I'm a bit backwards when it comes to influences because while I will do my homework, so you know, watch Grave Encounters and that, like watch what the brief requires me to watch. Um, I actively avoid films that could be compared to the film we're making before we make it because I don't I I don't want that idea on the tip of my tongue. Yep. Um, I want to try and be as novel as I possibly can. And I, I very much worry that if I have that information fresh in my head, then I'm going to go to that rather than coming up with something new. Um, it drives my collaborators nuts because they're like, oh, like in this film, I'm like, not going to watch it. I'm not going <laughs> to no. watch it before we start because I need to make sure it's right for our film, not right for, for that film. Um, and cliche as well. It's really easy to start being cliche if you start to uh, pull from 
from contemporary sources or even even um just just subjective sources um but uh so yeah so i i didn't watch anything like i i had seen so for instance i had seen obviously blair witch project at some point beforehand i think when it came out but i'd actually never seen the omen by the when we were filming borderlands so that said uh my husband dan worked on the film and he's seen every horror film coming into it so obviously he brought his sources rob is a is a huge horror fan so he'd seen lots of things um uh so uh, it's not to say that other people didn't bring those references to the table um but for me i oh gosh I, I i avoid them like poison ivy because <laughs> i feel like they're contagious and if you're not careful you just end up making a movie that already exists yeah. um and and at the very least, as long as I don't watch them, I can trust that the choices I'm making are mine. Yeah, authentic. Exactly, authentic is a great word for it. I love authenticity. Um, <laughs> and then uh, your second question was about the restrictions. So I think they kind of play into each other because my favorite situation to be in, and I think it's why I thrive in the indie space, is that I love inventive solutions that's like that's my favorite you know when people ask me what's your favorite thing about filmmaking the inventive solutions are really my happy place um because they don't have to be complex they don't have to be expensive and sometimes they can't be yeah. so it's um you know it's that gag about uh so a, a business uh is established at, at number 19 uh they're moving next door and so they have to spend a million pounds changing all their stationery no, they can just spend a fiver switching the the number plate. <laughs> it's it's that sort of thing where it's like just think out, out you know think outside the box. And I think if I watch the references, I get trapped in the box. So, yeah. um, I that's the bit I love. And some of the stuff we had to do for this, I think the most fun thing we had to do for this was we had to tether Eben, our cinematographer, to the actors. Um, and we literally <laughs> like we tied their belts together um because we we did a lot of tests with the cameras and what we wanted to do with the cameras and i knew something we needed to bring in was versatility because we needed to be able to edit around things yeah. and i don't like the aesthetic <clears throat> of of editing from uh shaky cam to shaky cam i think it's not a cinematic language i think it's it can be confusing and jarring and i'm one of these people who get seasick in films sometimes as well so like i'm not i'm not down for that um, this is not the born identity. Um, <laughs> so I knew we needed to figure out a way to get static cameras into the script, which is where the sort of security cameras came from. It's a, it's a bit where the gray character came from, is that we felt like we needed to justify talking about the technology. Yeah. Um, and we ended up we ended up getting these head cams that were actually um, given to us as product placement uh to utilize on the film they were these very like high tech and we we tested filming with them like we did test what it would look like if we actually filmed with them and the quality of the footage was fine but you you couldn't frame it for shit like it was <laughs> it was like and you can't rely on an actor like rob to keep his attention one direction because he's adhd as hell so um so instead uh we used a c300 camera which was the smallest body camera we could work with because um, we could have, it, it was very much the 5D era, but the, we found the body of the camera was too big to comfortably move with the actors. Um, so yeah, we literally wove Eben's belt, Eben, our, our DOP, who now shoots Avenue 5. Like he's, you know, 
far has he come? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, uh, to like Gordon or Rob, and Eben would literally just be stuck to them as they walked around. Uh, it wasn't, and and keep in mind too, we didn't have huge amounts of rehearsal time, so it's not as though it's choreographed. He just has to <laughs> sort of be a good dance partner and anticipate how they're going. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that that I think is the most fun one. There's there's some other stuff like I love the Father Krellick falling off the building gag because that is one shot. Um, and I'm <laughs> the way we achieved it is that I'm hanging off of the top of a thousand year old church with a priest's garb on the end of a pole so that like (laughs) the little skirt you see going over the the wall is me dragging this thing off the wall as the camera pans back it was this whole it's this tiny tiny rooftop tiny pit like a turret and watching us dance around the top of this ancient turret to get this shot choreographed and then the double laying on the ground at the bottom I was so chuffed by that. I was like, <laughs> and loads of people think it's a think it's a you know like VFX or something. And so I was like, no, yeah. no we shot that. We that <laughs> um, and then once once we started doing that, um, I just really started to have fun with it. So things like there's this tombstone as they're walking around, and they walk past it one direction, and it's got Gray's name on it. Oh, and then one of my favorite camera... moments <laughs> that's in my backyard still um and then as it as it pans back it's like a regular ancient tombstone and again that's literally they walk past it i step in behind them flip it around and then they pan back. <laughs> it's literally it's it's simple as that it's on oh. a pivot it's on like a little steel post in the graveyard um and it's still in my backyard. Um, but uh, my neighbors, my neighbors are very sus about about what I'm up to. Um, it's, it's a good Halloween prop, you know. Oh my lord! Yeah, <laughs> like my whole backyard, like between hands <laughs> and my stuff, it's like it's like a, a horror film graveyard back there. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I I love that stuff, and and it because it was found footage, I felt there could be a lot more joy in those moments because yeah. of the simplicity of it. So you know, I've told you how it's done. But because you loved it for for long enough before that, it doesn't take the magic out of it to know how Not it's done. Not at all. No. Um. But that's that's the thing I loved the most. Um. I had to order uh forty kilos of worms, and that was one of the <laughs> things that didn't work. <laughs> um. That should have been so much more impressive than it was. Uh. There's a bit where I I don't even know. I I think it's in there. Uh, I think it's in the film where where the guy sees fa- uh, Gordon sees Father Krellick. And then he opens up the robes and it's just like a pile of worms. Yes. So um, that was meant to be so much more impressive. And we couldn't figure out what it should be. Um, like, I, now I feel like it should have been slugs or something or maggots. But uh, but what I could get my hands on was 40 kilos of worms. <laughs> and what I didn't know about worms is like, unless they're in dirt, they actually kind of tie themselves together. Ah. So what we wanted was this like a big, big pile of yep. wiggling worms, but what they kept doing was like having a little cozy hug <laughs> and just turning into like a meatball. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think, I think one of the weirdest things I've ever has, had to ask a runner to do was clean worms. Um, <laughs> this young lady Harriet, who's a director now, uh, I was like Harriet, I need you to to rinse off these forty kilos of worms, please, because they can't be covered in dirt. That doesn't make sense. Why would they be covered in dirt? because obviously you convince yourself of these things but yeah so not all of the gags worked as well as i wanted them to but um 
but yeah I imagine there's a joy in just even playing around with all that stuff 100% and you know what it reminds me of two more of them as well um uh and I'm glad this is an artifact where I'm I'm listing these things out because they go from your memory um but one of the other things we did is the the narrow stairs the twirling stairs down to the caverns is the same (laughs) the same thing that goes up to the turret we just filmed them going down it okay (laughs) (laughs) i was like guys guys i mean why not (laughs) i think we'll get away with this nobody's gonna know it's a different turret because why would it why would it look different it's the same building exactly um (laughs) and then the the bookcase where gordon finds the the entrance that was actually a door to the exterior of the church um it was this random side door that just went outside and so we just tented off the inside of it oh. so it's black. So you assume, and, and it's, I love optical illusions like that because if you don't show the audience, then they assume it is what you're telling them. Yeah, why um, would you question it? It's... Yeah, so exactly, like you just, you don't question it. Um, and again, that's, so so the up-down stair, the up-down spiral staircase, and then the the door that's the bookshelf. So we built that bookshelf into the doorway um and i will say one of the biggest ball aches of my entire film career was getting those books back on the shelf for retake because <laughs> i think we shot that like gordon's amazing tearing those books off like he yeah. is going for it except nobody took a picture of what the books like looked like the first time oh. and they're all different colors and so the rest of the night I think it took us half an hour to get the books back on the shelf every time. But we're like, we can do this one more time, guys. We're not. We're not. Um, again, I don't. I don't know because I think I've blocked it from my memory. I don't. I don't think the continuity holds in that scene. I think if somebody watches it back, those books probably move around from shot to shot. But like, it's more about the mood and right? the moments. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, all these things, all these things, all these tricks, and yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And there's, there's also, um, there's things because it's found footage, you can be really light on your feet and make mm. choices. So there, uh, there was a bit where we were filming, and there's this dog barking in the distance, and it's like, oh, okay, and it's sort of in the back, um, and then we're like, well, why don't we get a dog in, and like do this bit of a dog tearing up a, a rabbit. And have it be like you know, the, and, and that was part of our reshoots. Was we saw the edit and heard the dog. We're like, oh, let's bring, let's bring in a dog, and then we can we can tie that all together as though it was it was meant oh, to be. So that was just spontaneous. That was yeah. You know, you say spontaneous. I still had to like hire a dog trainer and bring them out and do all that. But like, <laughs> but the idea was spontaneous. Um, unlike the burning sheep, which well, I, I, oh, yeah, I was tip tiptoeing around that, but. <laughs> Oh, so the burning sheep was um it was basically connectics. So I don't you know like those metal Lego sort of yep. things. So we built this frame and uh, I wish I could remember the name of the artist. There's this artist who makes these like massive uh uh automata that go on the beach and they're wind powered and they sort of crawl along on the beach and they're they're engineering genius like they're absolutely amazing so we took those and made this really really simplified version of that that when you pulled it along it moved its arms like you know like its legs and its haunches like this so it's sort of like a children's toy uh made of connectics and then we put foam around it and a shaped sheep's head 
Like the sheep's head is like really basic, sort of cut out of foam. Uh, and then we set it on fire and pulled it down a hill. Um, <laughs> so that was a one a one shot deal, like no, no. no. Or... So I think we did three or four of them because okay. the first time we did it, <laughs> Gordon couldn't look away. Like Gordon's looking out the window and the camera's behind him. And the first time we did it, he just kept looking at it and you need to see his face like you need him to look back at the camera in like shock and horror <laughs> and he was just staring out the window like <laughs> um so that's another one of my like producer career highlights is that uh it especially in my earlier films anytime something was dangerous um i made sure i did it first or i made sure i was the one doing it because i could make sure i was being as sensible as possible and you know if it's me who cares um but uh so i was the one pulling the sheep down the hill because the thing we didn't know was if the sheep was going to keep moving when it was on fire and keep going down the <laughs> hill after like being chased by this mechanical fiery sheep um but yeah so so that was no animals were harmed um no animals and, were harmed yeah exactly and then, explicit about that <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah no we love we love animals dan's a vegetarian so uh yeah. no animals were harmed certainly um but uh, uh, the sound, which affects a lot of people, of the sheep screaming, mm. is... Oh, do you remember that meme of uh, the Tyler Swift song with the goat screaming in it? Yes, yep. It's that sound. It's that goat. It's literally that sound from YouTube. I burned it off a disc from YouTube and was like, can we use this for the burning sheep? And we put it on and it works brilliantly. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that moment now. So it's... it's um, <laughs> I found the original clip because it's a longer audio clip than yeah. the original. And you need, you know, you need the tail head, head and tail so it fades in and out. So I went to the original clip and pulled it off. So yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I love the idea that like Taylor Swift and Borderlands <laughs> are connected in this way. It's very artful. Um, but yeah, so that 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 is all the little golden nuggets of joy when you have no money and it's found mm -hmm. footage and you can use the the tools of found footage to get around having no money <laughs> yeah it's just astonishing to hear all these yeah it, i feel like i know now the magic behind oh it's so fun like it this is. is what i like about it that's that is literally my funnest bit yeah for sure so i wanted to ask briefly about like the setting then because it's so fundamental to the film mm. um you know it feels like it's it's really creating the mood and atmosphere. I wondered how that fed into you, particularly, you know, in the caverns and the underground scenes, the night scenes as well. Like how the atmosphere that was created fed into the atmosphere on set. And was mm. it did or was it always just, yeah, we're shooting a film, or did you ever have a feeling of eeriness or so I'm an anxious person and as you know, over time we all get more zen, but especially at this point, um, I get night terrors, uh, which, which, like, you know, it's 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 just a weird psychological thing. But where, particularly at the time, the thing that would happen is I'd wake up and see the 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 classic, you know, trousers on the back of the chair, but it looks like a, a man yeah. about to break into your house. So I was very much. Um, already primed to be super nervy making this movie in the middle of an English wood um so how do we get the location bizarrely through a collaboration with the church national trust 
Um, did, I knew did they fully that, understand the project? <laughs> that was that was that was artful, I think. Yeah. Um, so I they needed to see an explanation of what we'd be filming. And I gave them an accurate explanation of what we'd be filming, the investigations of the miracles. But I didn't mention the exorcisms. I didn't mention the dead babies. I didn't mention any of that. Um, and uh, because I had previously in my life been kicked out of a location. <laughs> so when I when I made, sorry, the postman's here, the dogs are having a little like, meltdown. Um, uh, on the border, on the, sorry, on Devil's Business, we had been me meant to film at this, at a, at a, basically a B&B. And we told them we'd be filming. We made it very clear that that's what we were doing. And it was a genuinely tiny film. So it's not as though we were a studio film saying, oh, we're only a couple friends making a film. We were genuinely a couple friends making a film. So, um, I got, we, the cinematographer and I got in a car and drove out to location like a week before we were meant to be filming to do a little tech recce. And we pull up and there's like this gate at the front of the property. And there are these two people standing cross-armed at the gate at the front oh, of the no. property, looking very <laughs> like a local pub for local people, local shop for local <laughs> people. And um, uh, we're like, hi, is there a problem? Was, you know, I'm Jen. We're no, 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 no. And they wouldn't let us film there. And they also kept our deposit. Um, and it was because they said they had Googled me and that I was a pornographer and a devil worshiper. And so they wouldn't let me film there. And that was both one of the most exciting and terrifying points of my life. Um, <laughs> I worked on a series with a little known director named James Gunn called <laughs> PG Porn, which does what it says on the tin. It's porn without the sex. So it's just like the narrative of pornography, but nobody gets laid. And it's done to extreme comedy. Like, and it's loads of comedy actors people would know, like Alan Tiddick and uh, you know, Craig Robertson and like famous people, famous comedians. But it's called PG porn. <laughs> and it turns out that if you live in Torquay and you run a B and B and people say they're gonna make a film in your in your house and you Google them and they've been on something called PG porn, that's when you stop Googling. So so, <laughs> so they chucked us out and kept our check. And so we had to make the film for eight grand instead of 10 grand. And we ended up filming it at my in-laws house, which I genuinely thought they knew we were filming it there, but it found, I found out later they thought I was staying there while we were filming in town. So, so I don't lie about locations because it can bite you in the ass really thoroughly. Um, so I was as clear as they required. And I said, look, do you need me to tell you anything more about it? Do you need me to send you the script? Or are you happy with this? I'm like, no, we're happy with this. Um, and so I had a short list of churches that we liked the look of that had access to power, that had access to toilets, that had access to parking. Um, and, uh, I gave that list to Elliot and he went on a road trip with his wife and visited five or six of them, I think. And he gave me a short list of two and I started negotiating with them. And this was the church we ended up with um and it's really it's really amazing um we lucked out tremendously they're they're next door if you can believe it is a buddhist retreat called gaia house and that's where we got our toilet facilities and wow. from we were literally like cabling from gaia house and funnily enough ian fraser who runs gaia house 
he literally texted me yesterday. We still chat. Like, I, I want to go to Gaia House so desperately. It looks like <laughs> the most... people take vows of silence. So, so you ask about, was it creepy? So we're filming this horror movie where people scream day and night. Lots of screaming going on, especially with the exorcism scene, Father Calvino falling off the top, all that kind of stuff. Lots of screaming. Um, I remember I would let Ian know the day before if we were going to be doing any screaming the next day so we could sort of like <laughs> let the people who have come to the countryside for a relaxing vow of silence know that there's going to be bloody murder being screaming next door. Um, but the other thing is, because these people had taken a vow of silence and because it's a Buddhist retreat, it's all about mindfulness and taking things slowly and doing things in a focused way. So there were all of these people, I say all of these people, like half a dozen people, sort of wandering around nearby, taking these very Buddhist walks where they will not speak to you, they will not acknowledge you, and their hands are sort of behind their backs as they very slowly walk around. And if you take this in context of a Buddhist retreat, it makes perfect sense. But when you're making a horror film in the middle of the countryside, it's fucking terrifying when you round a corner and there's this person who will not acknowledge you. <laughs> Yeah, I can see so, you're really feeding into some like paranoias and oh anxieties. God, so weird. But then but then on the other hand, because the only thing, you know, the the church itself is completely disused, it's deconsecrated. Um, it's one of those places that that you know people touring the tr countryside can go get the key off Ian and have a little look around. But yeah. it's very disused. There's there's moss growing inside of it, like it's very disused. Wow. There's bats live in it as well, actually. You can oh, see some amazing. of them sometimes. In some of the rafter footage, you can see the bats actually. Um, but um, but so because of all that, because it's just this Buddhist retreat on the top of a hill up a winding road for nothing else up there, um, generations of animals have grown up around people who are completely silent and harmless. And so at sunset, you would get literal like families of hedgehogs and rabbits just sort of coming out of the bushes to have their little evening snacks and again just the juxtaposition between what we were doing and what <laughs> this space wanted to be was so great um but um was it scary one night uh i had left something in the church and the church has no power so we're bringing lights in work lights in when we're working in it um and all the lights were off because we're done for the day and so i had to go back into the church and and um i don't have a driver's license so i have a, a crew member who who drives me um that's not all he does i'm not that big of a deal <laughs> uh, so he was like oh i'll wait in the car for you and you can go get your thing so i go into the church and i get in the church and it's like exactly out of a horror film <laughs> Like I'm trying to find my my bag or whatever I left in the pews and I can't quite place it because it's completely dark and I've got my cell phone torch and I'm just like, this is a terrible idea. This yeah. is a terrible idea. Yeah, you're sensitive um, to every little noise. Oh my or, God. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and exactly. And so, and it's got like, it doesn't have a modern key. It's got one of those big <laughs> keys as well. And I'm sort of like, it's, and it's countryside dark. Like there is, it is dark um and i get outside i'm just like i just want to get back to the car and get home and not be murdered and i'm walking and it, there is a you know i'm walking through the graveyard to get to the car and 100 my colleague jumps out from behind a tombstone and scares the ever-living shit out of me <laughs> <laughs> so this this chap who's my driver he, he i 
I fell down. I like, I was like <laughs> back on my feet on the ground. And he's the one who plays Father Krellick's ghost, actually, because he and Father Krellick are the same height. So, uh, so he was, oh. he was already, I think earlier that day, we'd been filming his ghosty scenes and he just had a little bit more of his, his, his <laughs> performance to exercise before we moved on. But yeah, it was well freaky. It's perfectly harmless. It's a beautiful place, but it's super freaky, man. Um, I feel like I should, I should ask Ian if he should, uh, he should run some Borderlands themed weekends where he, <gasps> he has yes. like horror fans come stay at Gaia house and they can camp out in the church or something um but uh but yeah so it's the space itself is very special because we couldn't we couldn't have made that film without ian and his assistants like and again that's sort of what happens with independent films is everybody mm. loves it so much that they give of themselves yeah. um and like ian's family's in the christening scene uh ian got like locals he wrangled he was our he was our third ad wrangling locals <laughs> he would occasionally show up with just cups of tea and like big trays with tea on it and biscuits and we're in there like murdering somebody he's like biscuits <laughs> um but, you know it wasn't just that he oversaw the location he was so helpful without even any requirement to be so and you can imagine you're trying to run a buddhist retreat and these you know wackos are making a horror film next door yeah. <laughs> imagine he could have been combative but he is so lovely sure. and like i said we're still we randomly chat every couple of years um so i highly recommend people go check out the gaia house buddhist retreat and they can they too can experience the calmness of the borderlands <laughs> <laughs> um so I wanted to ask then, it's funny because talking to you, you've, I hear, I've heard you mention a few times that you've worked in very male-based settings yeah. creatively. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that this is a very male-driven film. You know, all the main characters are male. Aside, I think, from the christening, which we mm. do see a woman, I think no female characters in this film at all. Um I wanted to ask about what your thoughts are about the portrayals of masculinity in the film, you know, because they're very different characters, you know, it's it's almost like a spectrum of different modes of masculinity. Spectrum uh, of something with Rolf. It... Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I love this question. I've never been asked it before. Oh, wow. And um, I, I've actually never thought of the film in this way. So I'm really engaged with this question because... <laughs> you know we talked about earlier a lot of times when you're making something you just try to make it honestly and then after the fact you can look back on it and learn some things about yourself and i've got so i've got complex relationships with women i you know miss hudgerson's collegiate preparatory school for young ladies did not do anything to strengthen my female bond yeah. it was very much a mean girls situation kind of school yeah i went to um, an old girls school as uh, well so uh, yeah. yeah so you yeah it's it's a it's a and and when you especially when you don't grow up with uh male peers in that way you sort of i think you sort of seek them out um i'm i'm a bit gender fluid myself i find myself i've always been told i have a masculine energy which i don't know if that's you know it's such a weird thing to say in the 90s but i think we get what that means a bit more now yeah um but uh so for me when i look back before especially before i did prevenge when i looked back on my career i was like holy cow i don't work with women <laughs> what? how did that happen like that that's not supposed to be like that um and when i look back at the borderlands uh you know prompted by this question uh it it wasn't something we thought about at the time but i think 
it was an interesting reflection of those of us who were making it. Um, there was a sequence with a female character, the the mother of the christening. Um, there's actually an entire sequence of scenes with her that ended up getting cut from the film um, where we're meant to be suspicious of is the baby alive? Is the baby dead? What's happened to the baby? Why are they hiding what's happened to the baby? Um, but ultimately they didn't work in the flow of the narrative. So that was a sequence that we cut not because of the characters, but because of the narrative flow. It felt like it was taking us out of the main sequence of the film. Um, and what we ended up being left with is, as you say, this very masculine film with the everyone from the Father Krellick to the Mark to, you know, Gordon and Rob's characters. And funnily enough, I think the reason it shows is that spectrum is because that group of men sort of uh, became a pack in a way. And they sort of each fell into their little space in the relationship. Um, in particularly Gordon and Rob. Um, you know, we low budget film, we didn't have rehearsals before we started. So we're looking at the scripts in, in the evening before and then going in on the day and, and workshopping them and, and doing them. Um, so a lot of those relationships were formed in the hotel bar the night before. Staying staying in this, we rented out the entire Airbnb uh, like BNB in Torquay. Uh, and the bar, the the hotelier obviously was the barman as well. It was one of those places. It was very faulty towers, is what it just like, pops he was up everywhere. Yeah, but it was very faulty towers. Like the building was faulty towers, where like there was the room, the breakfast room, then the little bar on the side, and and they would these you know they'd form these bonds having a pint after doing this ridiculous day, and I think because they naturally engaged with each other, those are the reflections we see in the film. Yeah. Um. I cannot imagine anyone I'd rather sit and have a beer with beyond Gordon and Rob. They vibe off each other so hard. And I think that's one of the reasons this film is so successful is that they can literally drive around in a car together and take the piss out of each other. And you want to, you want to listen to it. We have so much footage of them taking the piss out of each other in a car. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, there's almost like a yeah, like a couple relationship, like oh a my dysfunctional God, so, marriage. Like <laughs> it really, honestly, and you get two performers who vibe like that, and 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 I I say all of this with love and admiration. They're they're sort of vying for the spotlight, but also trying to make each other laugh. They give to each other. You can you can really see that they do. It's, it's outstanding. Um. And and I you know Rob and Gordon are some of the only people who make me laugh with emails like they they've got <laughs> funny bones those guys, and um, Mark, uh, Father Mark, bless his heart because he came in after we'd been filming for like a week and a half, and Rob and Gordon have this absolutely manic energy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he comes in like the good student who's done all of his proper acting prep and like he's like what what the fuck is going on with these guys but that works for the conceit of the film right really so... does and and i think aiden mccardle who plays the role brilliantly um aiden was so kind to take that bullet in a way because i think they all saw that it worked for the portrayal of the film and so they went with it and i think i think it bless it i think it did mean that aiden didn't have 
as much camaraderie as he deserved on set because he was building that performance. But hell if it doesn't work. It translates though. So it's he yeah. nailed it. He he, <laughs> he, he he did what he had to do. He went to bed early, didn't go to the pub. He really did. And it and it wasn't it wasn't like an attitude thing. It was like he was he was like, oh, this is working. So let's let's keep this vibe going. Um, but yeah, remarkable performances all around. And everybody <laughs> everybody put the work in, but but Gordon would very much question that with regards to Rob who learned his lines a scene at a time and then would just do whatever the fuck he wanted when we started. <laughs> well, it worked, so... Exactly. Doesn't can't, matter how you get there. It works. Can't, yeah. can't hate where you went if you love where you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask about the central theme of the film, if you like, seems to be about, I would say, less religion and more faith and believing mm -hmm. Yeah. And our attitude and relationships to to having proof and evidence. And I wondered what your thoughts were about how this is explored in the film and the notion of perhaps needing something to believe in that is beyond our like comprehension versus needing to have proof. I like that. I like that added bit, the idea of needing something to believe in beyond our comprehension. Um that I hadn't thought of before. So the themes of faith and belief were intentional those were very much what i was developing when i was developing the script um i i grew up in the buckle of the bible belt they say uh in memphis tennessee and i was made to go to church every sunday until i was old enough to drive somewhere else <laughs> um, i desperately wanted to be watching ren and stimpy which was on at the same time as church and it felt like just a brutal punishment and for me personally, my relationship with faith, um, I have none. I uh, I remember at a very, very early age, leaning over to my grandmother in church. And and just, I was maybe like six years old. And I, I asked her, do, the, do these grownups genuinely think this is real? Or do they know it's make-believe? I love it, questioning it from an early age. Well, I just didn't comprehend it. It, it wasn't even like I I just always and, and like I knew Santa Claus didn't exist from a really early age as well. And so I just thought it was the same thing. I thought Jesus and God were like Santa Claus, but for grownups. And I was like, do they not know yet? Do they not know? yet? When did they find out that he's not real? <laughs> when are we going to break it to them? <laughs> exactly. How old are they when, when we tell them? Um, and I, I've spoken to my parents about this off and on through my life because they have faith. My dad was a deacon of a church for a while. Um, and I've, I've genuinely said, I just don't get it. It just doesn't, I don't under, you know, it sounds nice, but it doesn't click for me. Yeah. And so we wanted, you know, that for me was an easy theme to bring in because it's something I feel quite close to is the idea of, of seeing as believing. And actually sometimes we don't want to believe what we see. And so, and, you know, denying what we see right in front of us. And when you get into things like um, abusive relationships and that kind of stuff, there's a lot of denial about what's right in front of us. So all of those kind of themes, I really enjoyed getting in there. And they were, you know, those were the ones that needed to pay off that were structured when we started and that we wanted to make sure worked. Um, the the bit with the Bellum Church at the very beginning, the tapes in 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 quote-unquote Brazil or South London if you will 
Uh, that was that was another bit of fun is we got a load of Portuguese actors in to play the police. And they're not even actors, actually. I think they're just friends of somebody. They're just Portuguese. And so we were like, can you just speak some Portuguese while you're in here? <laughs> and so we filmed in a church in, in Camberwell and with some Portuguese people. And suddenly you're in Brazil. Oh, <laughs> um, but uh but yeah, making that scene, I think, really cemented Gordon. Uh, 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 I can't even remember. What is Gordon's character's name? I just keep calling him Gordon. Uh, it cemented Gordon's uh, arc because the idea that he didn't have faith and it got a lot of people killed. And so he's frightened not to have faith. Um, but he also refuses to. And then you get Rob, who's much more like me who wouldn't believe it if you know if he sees it he assumes it's an illusion or a magic trick um and so you have those two sides pushing and pulling at each other um and the the best thing you can do for dramatic tension is have two characters with conflicting goals uh always yeah. working against each other um so i think that really works and and gordon does like frustrated irate really well like just just over it yeah and i feel like <laughs> rob does excited labrador really well yes <laughs> and i think i think between the two of them it's just it's just it's them you want to watch that relationship play out yeah and i like as well that for me the, the film doesn't it doesn't dictate or seek to give the concrete answers on these themes of faith and belief and it kind mm. of just puts the questions out there and goes well there there it is and we'll leave that with you and you can you can respond to it you know on a personal level based on you know your thoughts feelings experiences etc yeah the the irony of an argument about faith and belief is that you can't prove it one way or another so <laughs> had that many a dinner party <laughs> exactly it's pointless it's so pointless well there's no end to it is there no. because it, it you know by design there's no evidence so you can't you can't conclude it logically um <laughs> or you can and then it's over very quickly so like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um next year very excitingly the borderlands is gonna turn 10 years old so um as you reflect on the film then like nearly a decade later have you had any thoughts feelings anything changed there or realizations so i really love what you've said about the male relationships depicted in the film and that's not something i've spent a lot of time thinking about but not not at the front of my brain if that makes sense yeah um, so i love that i i do think strangely i i mean you know I think you'd make every film differently if you started it a day later. Uh, mm -hmm. So would I make it differently? Absolutely. But I couldn't say specifically what that is. But I don't have anything I'd change about it. Like knowing what the knowing what the footage is, knowing what we shot, knowing how we shot it. I wouldn't go back and do reshoots and add and change anything. I wouldn't go back into the sound design. I wouldn't go back into... I I like the film as it is. Um, so there is that. It's It's... It does what what I feel like we set out to do, um, but ref reflecting on it ten years later, it's interesting to me that people still watch it. Like that absolutely boggles my mind, especially with what we set out with the brief, 
Like it was just meant to be viral. It wasn't meant to be deep. Okay. And uh it wasn't viral and it was deep. And as that as that happens, it's now become a bit culty, which is, yep. you know, you can't make a cult film on purpose. No. Um, and in fact, one of the things I told the execs at the time is you can't do something viral by design. So like, that was one <laughs> of the things I kept trying to explain to them is that like, without a ton of money, you can't do something viral by design. It's organic. <laughs> um, so it's kind of ironic in that sense that it became a cult film. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one. I love it as a litmus for what kind of movies people watch. Um, mm. Because it's it's the the curse of the filmmaker is the cocktail party question. Have you ever made anything I'd see, I've seen? <laughs> and, and I always just go, oh, probably not. Uh, <laughs> no, you seem like a nice chap, probably not. Um, but it's, it's astounding to me, the people who have seen it. Um, and uh, who who it sticks with. And, and I think that ending, is a lot of it. I think the relationship and then the ending are a lot of it. And I really, really didn't expect people to be as freaked out by the ending as they were. But it's for a lot of people, it's quite devastating. It doesn't lose its power. Like when I, I, I rewatched it for, for this, for the podcast, I was, I mean, my heart was really, I really put myself in that position, you know, and it's, it's the sort of the beats that lead up to it as opposed to the moment itself you know it's the rhythm and i think with a lot of horror it's the building of tension and there's there's two parts to that there's the the edit and the picture i uh, sorry the edit and the sound and i'm you know <clears throat> it's it's between you know you've got rob and gordon but then you have uh our our editors jake and will and our sound designer martin and like Will uh, edited the the Bross documentary that he won the BAFTA for recently. So like that's Will as he edits like really sharply. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he brought that buildup of tension because again, we had so much footage of just nothing in the caves as well. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, we layered in one of the last minute things was layering in these little uh, transmitters um which you, you we see because we there was no way to differentiate the caves from each other so we wanted to give a visual cue that they were getting deeper and that you know um i will say i studied descent for this bit because descent does a lot of really clever um light transitions like it gives each of its characters uh, a torch or a flare or a lantern so that you can discern where you are when you cut between them so that was something we tried to do a little bit. That was one place where I watched a reference. Um, and then, you know, there were a lot of choices about what not to show in the edit. Uh, there's actually a lot of close-ups of Father Mark slitting his own throat. Um, and that's that's intense. You know, Aidan McCardle, like, literally, and it's a great effect. It's a great effect, but we didn't need to see that much of it for it to work. Um, this is a really bad question. You've watched it more recently than I have. You don't see him slit his throat at all. You just see him kind of disappear off of no, the page. So that's why I was like, uh, yeah, you're yeah, telling yeah. me and so I'm checking back about, in like, my what, mind. Like, so, what did I say? Like, he's still in the caves. And how terrifying is that? Is he ever going to get out? Um, but the the seeing him slit his throat and as gruesome and as gory and as visceral as that was, it didn't, it put an end to the fear rather yes. than escalating. Keeping it ticking. So yeah. we, we took that out um, and uh, then everything, 
that that warm intestine was such a grim set because it <laughs> it was really hot and so everybody smelled and it was sticky and wet and so it was like boy bo sticky wet dirty sandy like it was not a happy place <laughs> it was it was only we built like this horrible children's play tunnel you know you know like in dog agility courses where they go running yeah. it was like basically that <laughs> but with like um ooze syringes all around the outside and like horrible fleshy padding on the interior uh and what we what we ended up doing is um the guys all had to go in from different ends of it as well so it was just yeah it was very grim um but yeah so the the editing there was as much about making sure we were escalating and not um not creating a a break or a speed bump in that tension for the sake of gore yeah. Um, and then secondly, the sound design. Now, Martin Pavey, who was our sound designer, is genuinely one of the best things going in British horror. Um, he does uh oh, who who directed Flux Gourmet? Uh Not Barbarian sure. Sound Studio, Flux Gourmet, uh Peter oh, Strickland. Peter Strickland, yeah. So he, does, he didn't do Barbarian, but he does all of Peter Strickland's other films. He does all of Ben Wheatley's films, he does all of my films, he uh like he does all uh, i'd say that and then i go he does all the good films um <laughs> very callously counting myself amongst that number but um he's amazing he's a gifted artist he builds tension like nobody i've ever worked with and um i think that's so key in horror is the subtlety of sound design um it's absolutely incredible. There's tricks like so. So a he doesn't say that I'm totally mad when I bring him the recording of a sheep off of the internet, <laughs> and he's like, "Oh yes, we must use that. Brilliant." Um, <laughs> and then uh, he's he's like a sound scientist as well, so he knows things. There's this thing called the shepherd's tone, which I don't know if you've ever encountered, but it's um, you know the gold dress, blue dress visual illusion thing. Yeah. And then there were all those sort of auditory illusions that came out around the same time and got popularity. So the shepherd's tone is an auditory illusion that sounds as though it's always scaling up infinitely. And what it is is actually two crossing sound waves, but you only ever hear the one that's going up. Oh. And uh, things like that create extreme tension in the listener. So the fact that he understands the science of it and that he knows what sounds upset people um means that you know you can have a scene of somebody walking down a long hallway and with no sound it doesn't bother you but you let martin sound design it and it's the scariest thing you've ever watched um so yeah i think those those elements um and as far as the caves go i i absolutely re recommend visiting them they're the chiselhurst caves they're open to tourists they're amazing they were they were uh, shelters in World War II, so we might all be going back quite soon. <laughs> um, they have brilliant, cheesy wax museum exhibits down there. They shot some of Merlin down there. People can go watch. Um, there's bits of it that they haven't been in for decades. People do LARPing down there as well, which is very exciting. Um, part of Demonoid, no, part of Inseminoid was shot down there, <laughs> which is a deep dive horror film reference. Um, but yeah, the, the caves themselves are quite cheery. Uh, I actually really like them. The people that run them are very much like your regional tourism board type people. 
Um, yeah. And they were very lovely and very helpful and very supportive. Um, it is dangerous down there. Uh, we had a map. Everybody had a everybody who was crew had a laminated map with the paths written out on them and like landmarks and like color coded. And I put down glow sticks uh, in all the bits we weren't filming on because you literally like 20 feet away. There's crew members I couldn't see. And and people like to play silly buggers on small films. So somebody goes off to be silly and jump out and scare somebody. And then we move on and they've got no light and don't know where they are. It very dangerous. Very yeah, quickly. it gets dangerous. Yeah. Um, uh, the day that the executive producer came to visit set, I lost the entire film crew for about half an hour because Elliot, the director, got very excited. And when I went to go up to get the exec, Elliot took the crew <laughs> just down a corridor, just down a different bit of the cave. And the thing is, it's so pitch black down there that literally you turn a corner and there's no light and you can't see your way back to where you were going. There's there's nothing. Um, so I was like vamping with the exec producer as we're walking around the caves trying to find the crew. <laughs> Just like, oh, well, it's only a bit further. I think they're just around the bend. Um, <laughs> and thankfully, I came across them. And I, I literally physically dragged them all back. So I was like, no. <laughs> One of my producer voice moments where it's like, you will not stray from the path. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's the only bit I was actually scared in those tunnels. I found them really peaceful. And again, maybe this is just me being weird. But um, it's so quiet and so echoey and so like the temperature is so consistent like cool and humid yeah it just feels i mean it feels like a crypt but in a very calm way like in a very like ah, oh, just a nice nap kind of a <laughs> kind of a sensation and we shot it at the end of production so i was pretty much ready for that at that stage um the the one of the most scary bits about that part two of the film is when rob is like wedged in that little tunnel and I will say that is a bit of filming that if they had started that while I was next to them, I would have told them no. Uh, but I was a little bit far away. And what happened was Rob just found this hole in the wall and just scooched back down it and was like, give me the camera. Um, so I had no idea how far it went back. I had no idea. Like the thing is, it's it's um, chalk. So it, it's a chalk or a chalk and flint, I think. So it can crumble um so it can collapse there's not like wooden it's not like a mine where there's like wooden supports it's just yeah. rock. uh and, and rob was just like and at one point he was like oh fuck i think i'm actually stuck and we had to take a minute to get him unstuck from his shoes oh no but so he was scooted back into that hole as far as he could get with his body before being stuck and then we put gordon in it and flip the you know so you film the same thing from both directions and say it's different you know different ends of the tunnel but I think that that bit is crazy effective. And I probably, if I had been in the space while they were doing it initially, I would have I would have probably put the kibosh on it. So I'm glad I didn't. But um, so it's not always bad to go against what your producer tells you to do. Um, <laughs> just 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 don't let me know and come back alive. And then everything's <laughs> Yeah. Just get the footage and then you've got the evidence and you're like, yeah. Exactly. I need the footage and I need you alive so I don't get charged in court. <laughs> <laughs> After that, do what you will. Um, but well, yeah, there we go. Yeah. Mm. I, I think uh, we need like a ghouls field trip where <gasps> we go to the Buddhist center, 
oh, go down yeah. to the caves. Definitely. I'd be super down for that. Well, and, and I should say Chislehurst is literally, you can get on it from, you can get to it within like 20 minutes from London Bridge Station. It's, it's anyone who lives in London can easily, not even a day trip, like an afternoon trip to the Chislehurst. Oh, wow. Park. Um, and it's like a like entry something like two pound fifty or it was at the time. Like it's very, it's lovely. They sell little trinkets in the gift shop. I love it. They sell like little pieces of rock from the Chislehurst Cave. Well, there you go. There's a there's a gift for the Borderlands fan uh, friend in your family. Um, let's go buy a piece of the cave. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'd love that. I love I love that kind of thing. And it's actually so with the ten year anniversary. This mm -hmm. is exactly the kind of stuff we're trying to think about what to do, because I think if anything, the fandom has sort of grown from the initial release, that it's very much a film that people discover and recommend to each other. Yes. Um, so we were able to buy back all of the rights to the film earlier this year. So I now own the Borderlands, which is like <laughs> slightly mind boggling to me. Um, very like just really chuffed about it if I'm yeah. honest like it was this it was this thing I'd done but that I didn't have any control over for such a long time um and so we we own it now and we're in talks to do a nice little 10-year uh dvd blu-ray release with some extra extra shots some behind the scenes some some cut footage there's some like I said, there's these hilarious conversations in the car that we just couldn't include because it didn't make sense in the film. But as a little bit of like, you've watched the DVD and then you want to go listen to more of what they're chatting shit about in the car. Yeah, here's it's a hilarious. Gift. Yeah, it's like it's like put it on while you're doing work, kind of like radio show nonsense. Make it into um, a sitcom. Yeah, one hundred percent. It would be a podcast these days. <laughs> yes. Um, but um, but yeah, so we've got we've got some bonus footage that's going in. We've got some new interviews that are going in. Um, but I'm we're trying to figure out we we want to do a road show with it because it's great in a cinema with a crowd. So we're talking to a couple of regional cinemas at the moment about that and then hopefully get a few more on. Um, but the other thing we're trying to do is um is get a little British found footage exhibit together actually because we've got a culture of things like dash cam like session nine you know like like this this verite horror that we have in this country um and it's quite fun to see all the bits and bobs you know i just went to the the science museum has this sci-fi exhibit on and they've got all of these spacesuits people are gaga to, to go look at them and loads of them are reproductions they're not even what were in the actual films yeah so there's part of my brain that's like, do people want to see the laptop from Dashcam? Do they want to see, you know, Gordon's sweater from from Borderlands in the lobby of the theater before they go in and watch the movie? So, you know, yeah. we're, we're excited about what we're exploring for it. And, um, you know, maybe we, you know, they do screenings at Chislehurst. So we're talking about doing one in the cave. I, I was going to ask, that would be the ultimate see this is exactly so this is this is the kind of stuff that we're in talks for next year right now so you know listeners let me know what would you guys come see because we want to do it for you guys you know we want we want to do it for the people who want to watch this film in a group of people um so you know speak speak your minds horror fans we're here to help <laughs> maybe like the opportunity to climb inside a giant <gasps> intestine <laughs> oh you know what <laughs> oh i love it it could be I, like the I, borderlands challenge <laughs> i love it that's exactly we could <laughs> it's a bit like it's a you know those shows that they had for kids which were basically like 
child military training, but under the guise of going into an ancient temple and telling your friends where to walk and collect coins. Yeah. Um, we could have a little one of those of like, you know, be be Gordon, get through the stomach of the worm before you go into the cinema. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. All this sounds incredible. And yeah, it's going to be amazing to see it turn 10 and to revisit it with, you know, fans everybody who loves it um it's just an incredible film and it just keeps giving it really does um so huge thank you to you Jen for for just being so generous and (laughs) you know given all the magic tricks all the inside info and I just love your enthusiasm for the film and it's so great to hear that it's back in your control uh, so you can do whatever you like with it now. Uh, exactly. and, and now, and now, if I don't, it's my own fault. Which is, which is, you only got yourself to blame. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, what can we expect from you next? Like, what have you got coming up, and where can people find and follow you online? So, for the best place to see what I'm up to, it's my Twitter feed at Jay Handorf, the the OG Jay Handorf on Twitter. <laughs> Um, and, uh, actually this November, um, people can, uh, hear me give a couple talks around the country. Actually, I'm doing a bit, bit of, bit of a, a, a go around with the B, BFI's tour of, um, There Be Monsters. Um, so on, uh, November 15th, I'll be at Cine City near Brighton, um, discussing, uh, prog rock and horror films. <laughs> um, <laughs> Talking about Tangerine Dream and The Innocents and Delia Derbyshire and all that kind of lot with uh, with my colleague Sarah Inglis. And then uh, uh, on the 29th of November, I'll be uh, at the Warwick Arts Centre uh, doing a talk about female vampires and representation of women within vampiric tales called Show Me Your Teeth. Um, so if folks want to come to those, I think they'll be fantastic. Um, and then, yeah, hopefully... Anybody, anybody has some of that sweet, sweet cash to to fund some horror films? Throw it my way because I want to direct this movie about uh, menopause that is absolutely hilarious and horrifying, and is my apology for letting down Ender <laughs> for so very long. Um, but uh, but yeah, so come find me there, and and you know, as always, happy to answer questions and just give me a shout on Twitter. Fabulous. Amazing. Um, So that just about wraps it up for this special episode of the Ghouls Gang podcast. Thank you to my wonderful guest, Jen Handoff, for taking time out of what I'm sure is a very busy schedule to be here with me. Um, Thank you to everyone for listening and for all your support uh, to Ghouls. It helps to keep us alive. Don't forget to check out ghoulsmagazine.com for the latest editorials, interviews, reviews, and we now have all episodes of our podcast available to listen for free. So yeah, go and check those out. We've covered everything from Alien to The Wicker Man. Um, Yeah, so go and have a listen to those. I've been your host, Rebecca McCallum. You can find me online at Pendle Pumpkin. Thanks for joining us. And until the next time, remember to keep it ghoulish.